Welcome to the ACP for AA podcast. ACP for AA is a national education initiative of Heart Tones, promoting informed healthcare decision making through advanced care planning conversations. This special four part podcast series highlights conversations with people who are working to close the healthcare disparity gap for African American families and communities. Today's episode is hosted by Monica Escalante with special guest. Dr. Gloria Thomas Anderson, Hartone's founder and creator of the ACP for AA initiative. They'll be talking about Dr. Anderson's near-death experience and her ACP story. Let's take a listen now. I'm your host, Monica Escalante, and it is my pleasure to have Dr. Gloria Thomas Anderson with me today. Today, we're going to talk about her story and how she created the one and only, I'm not aware of any other guide that is made for the African-American spiritual and ethical guide at the end of life. And this is a guide to help you make decisions at the end of your lives in a very culturally sensitive way. And today we want to know about Dr. Anderson's story. We want to know what made her focus on this need. This is the only guide that I know it's out there. So we want to hear about that. But first, Dr. Anderson, please tell us about your educational background. Currently, I am an assistant professor in the School of Social Work at North Carolina State University, where I teach human behavior, social justice practice courses, and policy courses. I hold an interdisciplinary doctorate degree in curriculum and instruction and educational leadership policy and foundations. I also have a master's degree in social work and I am a licensed social worker. Yeah, you really combine the academic background that you have with the spiritual. When the two merge, you create magic like this guide um, for the African-American families when they're making decisions at the end of their, their lives. So Dr. Anderson, tell us what gave you the idea, what triggered um, the birth of this amazing guide? Wow. Well, it really started when I was working on my master's uh, degree in social work. Um, I worked at the VA for my internship, working with veterans in the dialysis area. And the hospital did a drive for veterans to complete advanced directives. Actually, that was the first time I really had heard about advanced directives. And uh, as I talked with the veterans, many of them African-American, they were telling me their stories that, you know, they don't trust the system. They're not filling out any paperwork there, you know, and they just told me these uh, stories of inequitable care that they received and how their white counterparts had come in and gotten kidney transplants. And they were many of them still waiting and things like that. And so I started doing research around the health disparities and found that what they were saying was actually uh, documented in the literature. So and you've got firsthand information of health disparities that were occurring in front of you uh, as you were studying social work. And yes. so if this is not textbook disparities, these are people that are talking to you about right. what they are experiencing. Exactly right. And their stories really were the I say the genesis of what made me go into this whole area of learning more about end of life care for African Americans, advanced care planning, and the whole process of that. And uh, as part of that, my thesis, I uh, wrote the 
you know, the African-American Spiritual and Ethical Guide to End-of-Life Care. And that was really a collection of other people's stories of what they were asking in the focus groups, what they wanted to know about, what they didn't understand, terminology that they didn't know about. And, and we know that miscommunication is one of the main issues of cultural disparities too, in that people are not professional practitioners, don't always know how to best communicate with uh, diverse populations. And so what I did was I took their thoughts and what they wanted to know and put it into this booklet. And the interesting thing about that is I really didn't make a booklet. I just wrote it out like a little tablet. And I was invited to go to a conference on spirituality and social work in Canada to present my research. And I applied for a travel grant. And the Women's Council at UMKC uh, loved my concept with my little handwritten pamphlet. And they actually said, we would give you the money to create this actual patient education resource. So it was really meant to be, I, I didn't even know that it was the first of its kind. I had no idea that what you know their stories and what they were telling me uh, was something that was across the board needed by many other families. So I was really excited to get that grant and that's how the first edition uh, was created back in 2006. So since the first edition, it, a you've been putting more research and more work into this version. This is the ninth edition uh, yeah. that I have in my hands, which is enriched by um, even more. So tell us about this journey of from edition number one to edition number nine. What, what happened in between? So much happened. Um, a year after I wrote the book, I actually had a misdiagnosed condition based upon uh, a doctor who made an assumption about what was going on with me uh, and uh, it was not correct. Uh, she made that assumption based on the color of my skin, not on the symptoms that I was experiencing. And unfortunately that led to a near death experience for me a year later. And what that taught me was, first of all, you could be healthy and well and doing great. And then something can happen that's not planned, uh, a life-threatening emergency like what happened with me. And you might not be able to speak for yourself. And so the realities of what I had written in the book actually hit me personally. So I I was healed. I you know have a long a testimony around that, how, you know, I was restored like a miracle in how my healing took place. And I do, as a, a person of faith and, and a spiritual person, do believe that the creator did indeed uh, miraculously uh, fix the, the things that were misdiagnosed in me. But the thing that really stood out to me is how important it was for my family and my doctors to know what my wishes would be during that time where I wasn't able to speak for myself. And I did not have that in place myself because I didn't think I needed it. And that just made me realize how important it is to be prepared or to pre prepare for life after now, an acronym I, I created uh, recently in the last few years, PLAN, P-L-A-N, prepare for life after now. We need to plan 
And uh, so that, that, that fueled a lot of the momentum in terms of my advocacy work and me, you know, working with community at the community level, working with churches, working with families directly to help them better understand that, you know, this conversation is something we, we all need to do, whether we are healthy or not, whether we're young or old, because life happens to all of us. And we don't know the day or the hour that we might leave. What an interesting irony that you worked on this guide and then experienced um, that yourself um, and sort of all of these um, reasons why it's necessary to do advanced care planning hit you when, um, and, and I'm sorry about the misdiagnosed and, and, and thank God really you got healed, but many people don't have that um, opportunity. And when decisions are not made uh, and are not communicated to our loved ones, what we see is uh, families can end up in a very difficult position and uh, adult children uh, upset with one another or with a legacy of um, concerns that they really honor their parents' wishes or not. So what is uh, very special about the guide, the um, African-American spiritual and ethical guide at the end of life that you created is that it is done with the feedback of the faith community. Tell us more about that. Well, let me share a little bit more about what you just said, if you don't mind going back to how families need to really have those conversations, the importance of it, regardless of your culture, but particularly in African-American, um, in our population, you know, there's fear of, of um, a mistrust issues that we're dealing with and those kinds of things that's also documented in the literature. But I wanna share a little bit about um, how I believe God used this for our family when my mom passed away. Um, in 2007, after I went through my uh, life-threatening illness, um, well, first, let me go, 2006, I took the book home to Texas and let my mom and my dad see it, and she didn't know her pictures on the cover, and she looked at the book, and she read it, and she said, um, what y'all gonna do with me? Let's talk about it, and she looked at me, and she said, so what y'all gonna do with me? And, and I said, well, what do you want us to do with you? Because we've never had this conversation either. And she said, well, I don't want to be hooked up to all of those tubes. And if I can't breathe on my own, I don't want that. And she was explaining. I said, well, let's just do it. You know, let's complete an advanced directive. One was inside of the book. And we did that. And, and um, you know, about a year later, she also had uh, an aneurysm and she um, you know, was unable to speak for herself. And, and, and she also came through all of that. But in the end, she was not able to ever be herself again. She had to have 24-7 care for the next uh, eight years or 10 years of her life. And when in 2018, before she passed away, um, she, we revisited her plan. Like, mom, what do you want to do? And she said, I want this, I don't want this, you know, I don't want this, this, that, and the other, the same way she felt the same way. We made sure that we updated all of her information. And when she wasn't able to speak anymore and we, she was in hospice, the, the beauty of it is that 
our family didn't all agree on what her care should be during those last months of her life. But because she had told us, it helped us to accept and honor her wishes, which made us all avoid some of the, the discord and chaos and, 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 and the harshness that people experience that I've seen people experience in their families when a, it's a time when you really need to be you know, loving and held and supportive to each other, not fighting. And, and uh, we were able to get past our differences because we all decided to honor what my mom's wishes were. So when she transitioned, we were all around her. We were, uh, I was actually saying a prayer over her and I, I, we all had a sense of peace. We missed her terribly, but I believe that that book and her seeing her picture on the cover and asking that question years before gave us that peace and tranquility when she did leave us uh, in 2018. What I love about that is by her asking the question, what you are going to do about me mm -hmm. is, is the door for her to tell you and everybody else what she would like to be done about her. You are listening to the ACP for AA podcast. More coming up after this quick break. ACP for AA stands for Advanced Care Planning for African Americans. Our website is a trusted source in healthcare advanced care planning for the black community. What is ACP? ACP or Advanced Care Planning is thinking ahead about the type of medical and healthcare decisions you would want made for you in the future, especially if you are seriously ill. Get started now. Visit acpforaa.org. Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice is a nonprofit healthcare organization that provides hospice care to residents of Montgomery and Prince George's counties in Maryland. Our interdisciplinary team includes physicians, nurses, spiritual counselors, hospice aides, bereavement care, and volunteers. And we also provide complimentary therapies. To learn more about our services, please call 301-921-4400 or visit us at www.montgomeryhospice.org. By her asking the question, what you are going to do about me, mm -hmm. is, is the door for her to tell you and everybody else what she would like to be done about her. Yes. And what a great, to, great way to honor her. Yes. The, her last moment doing what she would have liked to be done with her and not what we think is the best. Or, um, and I also, from what, from what you're saying, wishes change over time. So you could make one, um, one sort of um, advanced care planning form today. And uh, as we age, I remember that with my father at the beginning, he said, oh, I'm a fighter. I want every treatment that is out there. Mm -hmm. But now, um, 10 years later, he says, please don't send me to the hospital. I really don't <laughs> want to be there. Sort of, we change and we change as we see people around us. And what I like about what you're saying is these, not only filling out the form is important, but the conversations that are happening around 
the form and how you've taken these conversations to the faith community. I really want to talk about that because I think that's making it very culturally sensitive and safe because these are not easy conversations to have. You really need a lot of trust to make yourself vulnerable and talk about fears and learn about what options are out there. Yes, yes. Um, Yeah, so one of the things I'm really excited about more recently from this work is the success of the booklet has helped, you know, hospices, healthcare um, organizations, families, churches, um, social service agencies, those who serve others in this population. Um, And I'm really grateful for that. But in 2018, um, when my mom passed away, I started thinking about um, how can I help more people with this? You know, they have the book available, but what else can I do uh, to help uh, them get get this really as a part of the norm of our churches, our you know ministries, and things like that? And so, I decided to do an online survey, and I conducted it in July of 2018 with 72 African American pastors, ministers, and faith leaders to learn more about their knowledge level in dealing with advanced care planning and end of life issues within their own congregations and communities. And I also wanted to know what interventions they were also using at the time to help their congregants in situations of serious illness and death. And I found that nearly 87% saw their churches having a role or responsibility to assist their their members in these matters. And uh, then the survey revealed that only 14% though currently did anything or had any type of program in place to help that happen. But mostly all of them, 90% saw a need in their congregations to provide a culturally relevant educational process to help their congregants learn more about healthcare decision-making related to advanced care planning and end-of-life options. So I developed the Let's Talk About ACP program. It's a toolkit with a train, uh, train the trainer model uh, that utilizes uh, facilitators to kind of provide virtual and face-to-face educational workshops through the ch- to the churches and to the communities uh, using my guide or using the booklet as, as the workbook and also as the takeaway for conversation starters after they attend the workshop. And I'm proud to say that we've done two pilots so far that have shown great success and people really responding well to the information and taking that next step to actually start having conversations with their loved ones. So that that is something I'm very proud of right now. (laughs) So interesting that you're saying that the 90% see the need, yet about 14% are doing something about that. It's a huge gap. And most people don't know how to talk about end of life or feel like, why why are we going to get on that subject that it's such a downer? Uh, When we, uh, somebody suggested at at one point that these are conversations that we should be having um, uh, at um, Thanksgiving. And somebody else said, no, I'm not going to ruin my Thanksgiving with these conversations. So I think... um, what, we, what you're trying to do is give pastors tools 
So when the opportunity arises, they have a toolbox full of tools that they can use. One of them could be to educate their congregation because it's like anything else, right? If you haven't practiced having these conversations, you're not gonna know how to have them. You can speak to any conversation that we're trying to have. The first time we have it is the hardest. And as you have them, so I, to practice them in the faith community with people you trust, that you're all on a mission in community with people that support one another is the safest space to start doing this work. And um, to know that this is a conversation that we all need to have many times in our lives. Right. And, and, and I love that you're training the pastors and the leaders of the churches. It's not centered in one person, but it's a team train the trainers and they are training other people at the same time. Because when we teach others what we've learned is when we really know, get to know what we learned better um, than before. I love the model and how you are building community around these hard conversations. And also in the guide, as you have it, it goes, it's very gentle. And, and like others that are, you just have the form and say, do you want this treatment? You don't want this treatment. It's so harsh. This one is gentle. You actually talk about how to do it in a gentle way. So tell us a little bit about that process that you designed to make this an easier conversation. When I've done workshops before, people have asked, you know, yeah, this is great, but how do I have this conversation with my family or my daughter or my son or my or my parents? And they don't want to hear this. And I said, well, one of the benefits of using the booklet is that there's 21 things that you can start a <laughs> conversation from. You can share the personal story that I've added around uh, at the very beginning, which is one of my relatives who was taken to the hospital for a medical emergency. She hadn't seen doctors in many, many years and uh, was afraid. She uh, grew up in the era where um, the Tuskegee Institute um, situation uh, happened and she knew about that and, and so many others that are not documented in the literature, but have uh, that people know through generational stories that have happened. So she was um, so uh, frightened by it. And when the nurse, this is one of the miscommunication issues, when the nurse asked her, did she have an advanced directive on file? Here again, not explaining what that was, her mind went straight to thinking that they were trying to trick her and get her to sign something to put her in a nursing home. And so that, so that's a great story to share at the beginning of the, of the booklet to talk about that. You know, what are you afraid of? What, are, what would you want done if this were, were the situation you were facing? Um, and, the, and the other things that are in here, just I offer um, an advanced care planning checklist so that you can look and see what type of person or what the qualifications of someone you would ask to be your healthcare proxy, what would that need to look like? You know, things like that. People just don't know. I've talked with one family uh, that a mother who had two daughters and she said, I would like my oldest daughter to be my proxy, but really my youngest daughter would be best based on the fact that 
I know that she has the ability to move ahead of her emotions, that she can talk directly to doctors and she will ask questions. My older daughter is more timid and she, you know, may not say anything and she might be too emotional and, you know, things like that. So that criteria is very important. Who, who do you want to speak for yourself? And not only that, but who do you want to speak, but will they want to do it for you? Getting their permission, letting them know. I spoke for a men's uh, business group once and um, a man came up to me afterwards with tears in his eyes and he said, thank you for sharing this information with me. He said, my brother made me his healthcare proxy and I didn't know it. And I'm at the hospital and he's not able to speak for himself. And I wouldn't have wanted that role. You know, I didn't even know he had me on there. And uh, once I heard that story, the next edition of the booklet I added, make sure that person you've, you've chosen knows that you've chosen and accepted and are willing to be in that position. Those are the kinds of things that we, we miss. I try to, again, use the stories and the realities of people that I've met over the last 14 years to incorporate the concerns they have. So yes, the booklet has 21 things that you can use to start a conversation at any point. You also have um, one of the questions is, uh, did you know that unforgiveness can drain your energy and steal your joy? Sort of, it's, it's an assortment of um, such key questions that I almost feel like I would like to go through this um, with my own children to get through the quite and at the same time you have information about palliative care um, that most people don't know what palliative care is that's a big big misconception out there they have no idea and um, and plan prepare for life after now. Uh, and, and really, I love that acronym because it is life after now. Yeah. Um, and it's so much more gentle. Um, one question that I have for you is I, I, uh, a lot of times I'm talking with the different communities. Can you speak to the specifics? Of why mainstream um, uh, advanced care planning that has worked with a Caucasian population want to do well with the African-American population? Well, we know that all states have their own advanced directive forms, some ranging from a page or two to 10 to 12, 18 pages. Uh, so the length of information that's asked in there and not always explained uh, in a culturally sensitive way terminology usage, those kinds of things make a difference. I, I believe that um, having, first of all, because we, we can't change what, what is as law, what those legal documents are, and they are all different, um, what, what can we do to help people better understand how to approach them? What can they, how can they fill them out in other words? And um, giving them instructional um, instructions that really like answer questions that they have, you know, and, and having the workshop, for example, is one way that, that I've found to um, help these uh, forms that have really been created for from a European Western 
um, medical perspective. Um, and, you know, we know that many people of color come from collectivist backgrounds where they look uh, not just as the individual, which is individualism, which is Western in terms of thought and procedure, what do I want, for example? It's more what do what is best for us, our family. So just those types of differences make a big difference in how people will respond to those um, questions and uh, statements in those documents. So I believe, yes, it's very important to, to have culturally relevant uh, approaches to uh, these types of advanced directive documents that, that align with people's values, their values, their beliefs, and uh, their cultural norms. Right, and, and take time to, to have these conversations as well, right? Sort of that very basic difference of some decisions are made in community and some other cultures uh, favor individualism. And I just wanna put my wishes as they are. And the other one favors the family unit or the community unit, what is good for us, that us will take a little longer. It's not something that, you know, if you're, the, if one person is making the whole decision, that's a form I can fill out and sign and I'm done. But if it's one that involves community, as, as you mentioned it so well, it's a process. It's a process that will involve numerous conversations and really the role of the faith community in facilitating uh, the space and providing families with the tools so they can have these conversations. Uh, I think that's part of the work of, um, of the faith community uh, from my perspective. And I would like my own faith community to take action on this. And we at Montgomery Hospice and Prince George's Hospice did a conference with Dr. Anderson some time ago. And I remember the deacon of this one church who had been really skeptical about all of these trainings came to me and he said, this is the best training I have had in my life. And, and, and I remember other members of that church, they said he never praises <laughs> the trainings and he's so happy about that. So, um, so that's to speak to the power of your trainings, Dr. Anderson, you, I've seen you do this and it is done in a um, compassionate, kind, but also very solid um, um, with content, content that puts why we're here in perspective, that we just don't show up this way, but there's history behind our beliefs. It's not that we don't trust, it's that things happened in our lives that led us to not think of all the organizations as trustworthy. So um, that's, that's the, the shift in, in language. If you are part of a congregation that wants to partner with us to do more training, we will have information available. You can always contact, contact us on the website, which is www.montgomeryhospice.org. And that is, um, that is a partnership with Prince George's Hospice as well. Uh, Dr. Anderson, it's been a pleasure to get to know your story. There's so much behind um, this guide to the African-American spiritual and ethical end-of-life care guide that I feel it's even stronger for me now knowing 
everything that went on and the many lives that were touched already in the development of this guide. Thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity again to just share uh, about the work that I do. Uh, I'm really uh, grateful, grateful, grateful uh, to have purpose like this and meaning in my life that uh, touches people in a way that's really helpful for their lives and their families. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, and I look forward to our next episode. Well, that's it for this episode of the ACP for AA podcast. Thank you for listening. It's a good time to plan. That is to prepare for life after now. Visit the ACP for AA.org website to view our webinars and to download other helpful resources to prepare your ACP.